invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke 6. Good singing today. I, uh, I trust that you're not too burned out on those hymns. Uh, they get sung a lot around this time of year. But indeed, uh, there's a reason. We sang in that third verse, No more let sin and sorrows reign. May we fully comprehend with the angels that declared His birth with the, the, the shepherds who uh, went to see the Savior on that, that evening. May we fully comprehend the magnitude of what happened when God became man. And that's why we focus so much at this time of year. Luke 6 uh, will be in verses 27 through 49 over the course of the next two weeks. Title of the message, From Spirit-Minded to christ like, last week in Luke 6, we spoke about the privilege that we have of becoming spirit-minded, of adjusting our thinking to see the world from a perspective of the spiritual rather than of the physical. Through spirit-mindedness, we understand the divine blessing upon the poor in spirit, where the world around us blesses the proud. Through spirit-mindedness, we understand the divine blessings upon those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, while the the world around us hungers and thirsts for self-righteousness. We call upon one another to invest in spirit-mindedness, to be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, and to guard ourselves against the possibility that, through a love for the world or through our desire for the flesh, we seek Constant loyalty to the material at the expense of the physical. Now this week we're, we're going to continue in the text, continue in this context. Jesus is still speaking here. And we learn more of his expectations. Once you've invested in spiritual mindedness, once you have changed your mindset to become one where you see the, the spiritual as of more importance to you than the physical... When you see the world through those lenses of the spiritual realities, of the way Christ's economy works, that it's not this, um, this run-over-everybody uh, sort of a, a lifestyle, that pragmatism and the lesser of two evils and ends justifies the means is not the right way of thinking. When we, when we see things from God's perspective, that there's a blessing for humility, that there's a blessing upon suffering, that there's a blessing upon a yieldedness to Christ, then we can begin to understand what Christ desires of us and conform to it. Once we're devoted to a heart which fully believes in the blessings of the spiritual above that of the physical, then we are free to live out those blessings and this will make you Christ-like. And to be Christ-like is really the whole point of living. It's why we're here. There's really nothing else that matters. With these instructions, however, will come warnings. Warnings to those who might not yet appreciate spirit-mindedness, who might have their loyalties still in the world, in the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we'll see that while our God is indeed patient and kind, He still expects us to obey. So this message will be in two parts over the next two weeks. I wanted to kind of get it into one message, but there was just no way with all the content. Then I wanted to make it four messages, but that would get us bogged down. So we we have two, 
And uh, though it will be this morning and next week in the morning, I'm not going to preach the second half this evening, so you, you should all be here even if you're uh, just a morning attendee, uh, for both of those messages, uh, it really is one thought, one lesson, one direction that we're going to be talking about over these next two weeks. And this morning we're going to consider Christ-likeness realized. Jesus is going to give us definitive commands on how we can be Christ-like. Next week, we're going to talk about Christ-likeness rationalized. So this week, the commands. Next week, it's going to be Jesus reasoning with us about why this is reasonable, about why we should, about why it's worth it to live this way. So let's dig into the text. You're in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27 and 28, we read this. Jesus speaking, he says, but I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, Do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. On the heels of Jesus' blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they which uh, are, are mourn now, blessed are they which do hunger now, all of these blessings, and then all of the woes, woe unto you if... um, Um, Excuse me, woe unto you that are full, woe unto you that hunger, woe unto you that laugh now, woe unto you, for ye shall mourn and weep later, woe unto you when men speak well of you. On the heels of these blessings and on these woes, Jesus then instructs on what it looks like to be spirit-minded, on what it looks like to obtain these blessings. You which hear, Jesus says, he says, but I say unto you which hear. There were many there on that day, there were many there that Jesus was speaking to who were, li- who, who it, it got into their ears, but they weren't actually hearing what he had to say. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school today, that sometimes it takes months, years for us to take that which we have heard from the word of God and actually make it our own, to actually wake, awaken to the reality that, oh yeah, Jesus is speaking to me and we know it. But if it doesn't touch you, then you really haven't heard yet. And Jesus says, for those of you that have heard, for those of you that this actually makes sense, for those of you that are ready to assume spirit-mindedness, I have some commands for you. For those of you that are fully persuaded to follow faith in Christ, I have some commands for you. To you, Jesus gives this command. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. This is not an easy command, is it? These are not easy commands. There are men and women in each of our lives who have hurt us deeply. Men and women who we might be tempted to call our enemies for one reason or another. They treat us shamefully. In this information age, you can read the news and every week you can find uh, articles about people who hate Christians who think that we are the scourge of the earth, people who truly loathe us, people who would be glad to see us physically harmed, glad to see us destroyed. And unto them, we, especially in this country, a country that was kind of founded on the principles of rebellion, a country of individualism, a country where we have rights and freedoms and a lawful capacity to defend ourselves either by law or by force, We have a propensity to really love that concept of an eye for an eye. We have a propensity to really gravitate toward meeting force with force. To hate those that hate us. And while there is an element of justice to these thoughts, make no mistake, such thoughts do not originate from our Lord Jesus Christ. According to our Savior, the creator of all who is, the one who sustains us, the one who is over all, 
the one who is worthy of our obedience by right through creation and by redemption, you are to love your enemies. You are to bless them. You are to do them good. You are to pray for them. So who is your enemy today? When I say love your enemy, when I read that, who, who pops into your mind? Maybe your neighbor, business partner, bully at school, bad employee, bad boss, bad company. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a church member. Maybe it's a government leader. Maybe it's a government. Maybe it's an institution. Who's your enemy? Jesus says, love your enemies. Do you love them? Are you good to them? Do you bless them? Do you pray for them? Jesus says, if you want to be like me, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they which do mourn. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and say evil things against you for my name's sake. But I say unto you which get this, to you which hear, to you which understand that the spiritual is more important than the physical, that the life to come is more important than this life, love your enemies. Do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. But this isn't just about being nice back to them. Look at verse 29. And unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. When this enemy comes and he wants to do you harm, Jesus says when he wants to hit you, physically hit you on the cheek, not only should you not hit back, not only should you immediately forgive, but in, in philosophy, you should turn your other cheek and let him hit that one as well. When the enemy comes and physically steals your cloak from you, not only should you not resist, not only should you immediately forgive, but you should take off your coat and give it to him as well. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus is laying down a principle here. A principle of selflessness, a principle of humility, a principle where you have set your desires, your rights aside for the rights of others. Listen closely because I'm not going to be able to spend uh, every, every moment giving these little asterisks, these little caveats. We must always interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. Jesus teaches on the, Christ, on the Christian's duty to turn the other cheek, to give his coat. And he speaks on giving to those who ask and giving your goods to those who would even seek to take them away. Now he's not teaching here that there's not supposed to be anything, any law and order. He's not teaching here that there's not supposed to be any repression of crime. He is not teaching here that you should allow... That, that society should allow crime to run rampant because to, to resist crime is to be unchristlike. He's not saying that those who would seek to harm and to steal and to destroy should not be resisted and should not be punished. In fact, Romans chapter 13 tells us that this is the duty of government, is it not? That it is the duty of government to resist evil, to punish evil. They are a terror to evil. That is the purpose of civil government. Jesus is also not teaching that you need to be a willing victim, going out of your way to be taken advantage of, or to give of your rights and possessions willingly to those who will use them for wrong. Jesus is not calling you to be an enabler of evil. He's not calling you to be a victim. He's setting down a principle here. 
He's teaching a mindset. Remember, spirit-mindedness working itself out in Christ-likeness. What is the spirit-mindedness? What is the mindset? The mindset of spirit-mindedness, the template within which you live your life, is that you should not be personally vengeful. That you should not assert your rights at the expense of others. That you should not be hasty to demand yours, what is yours, to take others to law, to seek to be vindicated, to seek your rights, to not be quarrelsome over physical possessions, to not yield the testimony of Christ for things, for emotions, to not yield the distinctiveness of gentleness and of love and of carefulness for the sake of things which are just going to burn, to not yield the spiritual for the sake of the physical. Jesus is forbidding private quarrels over things that have no eternal value. That, na- that rake your neighbor broke, don't fight with him over that. Don't fight with him over that. The damage to your car, don't take someone to court over that. The money you lent, don't start a personal war against someone to get it back. That's the mindset. That your rights are yielded. That you recognize that the things on this earth are just things and it's not worth damaging the testimony that you have of Christ in order to hurt somebody or to vindicate yourself. Love your enemy. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them which despitefully use you, which take advantage of you. Pray for them, Jesus says. But pastor, that isn't fair. So what? You're right. But pastor, that will confirm them in their evil. Will it really? Did Jesus make a mistake with these words? Do you imagine Jesus is in heaven today sitting at the right hand of the Father and he looks at the Father and he says, Father, you know, when I made the world, it was all good. That was a pretty good, good, good thing there. I, I thought that one went really well. Father, when, when I ordained the nation of Israel and I chose them and I redeemed them, I thought that went really well, but... Father, there's just this one thing that I said that I really struggle with. I think Jesus is up there at the right hand of God saying, you know, I hope that the church doesn't take it too literally when I told them to love their enemies. I hope that the church isn't really thinking. I hope that they kind of ignore that one. Bless them that hate you and, and that would curse you and pray for them that would despitefully use you. I'm, I'm pretty sure Jesus isn't saying that. Did he mean what he says here? Well, he does. And how do we really know he means what he says? Look at his life. He means it, and he means it this way because Jesus lived that way, did he not? To his very death. He's hanging on the cross, and he's dying, and the words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't mock. He didn't berate. He didn't rebel. He didn't resist beating. He didn't resist when they were lying about him and slandering his character. He didn't resist. When they hung him on a cross, he didn't resist. He loved them. He did good to them. He blessed them. He prayed for them. Did Jesus mean it? He meant it. Does he mean it for you? He means it for you. For you which hear, if you're willing to hear, he means it. Are you better off with one bruise on one cheek and then thrashing the guy that bruised you? Or are you better off with a bruise on both cheeks? Are you better off without a cloak but still having a coat? Or are you better off without either? From the world's perspective, the less damage, the better, right? 
The less you lose, the more you've been vindicated, the more you can assert your rights, the more you can stand on those rights, the better. From a world's perspective, the less you're taken advantage of, the less you are persecuted, the less you must sacrifice to your enemy, the better. So much so that if I can just change my lifestyle so that people will kind of like me, so that they won't be compelled to, to take things from me, or so they won't be compelled to persecute me, or so they won't be compelled to hate me, then let's just do that. But do you have enough of faith to believe that if you willingly suffer the evils of the world against you for righteousness' sake... It's not talking about going up to people and really making them mad and annoying them and being a jerk and then, and then feeling like you're vindicated when they hate you. This is talking about suffering against you for righteousness sake. When you take the spiritual and you elevate it above the physical and you suffer for it. You suffer materially. You suffer emotionally. When you're persecuted, when you're hated for doing what's right. When you give to that person and they take that money and they use it for something that you didn't want them to. When you, when you are, are taken advantage of and some business uh, lies to you and they take something from you and, and, and they've, they've done you wrong. When your family member lies to you to get you to do something, to manipulate you into an action. These are the circumstances we're talking about. Are you going to vindicate yourself or are you going to follow the path that Christ trod? If you yield your right to quarrel or to sue or to demand your rights or to that which you deem is yours, do you believe that God can do better for you by obedience than by you standing up and asserting your rights? Can you trust that if you do it God's way, it will be best for you and for all involved? Can you bring yourself to be kind to those who are unkind to you? Can you bring yourself to refuse the right to defend yourself and rather take the wrongs done against you? Do you have the faith not to be, not only to be deprived, to be taken advantage of, but to deprive yourself, to place yourself out there, to put yourself out there in order to bless your enemy? Pastor, Jesus couldn't have meant it. Well, is there any reason why he couldn't have meant it? Is there any reason to assume he did not? That when you're faced with situations where someone hates you for righteousness sake, when media organizations call the type of people sitting here this morning as worse than terrorists, which they are, when your neighbor is unkind, unethical, seeks to take advantage of you. When your family member lies or cheats or steals because they feel they can. Can you believe that God wants you to love and bless and be good and pray for them? And that God will reward you if you do it His way. There we go on. Verses 30 and 31. Jesus says, Give to every man that asketh of thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as you would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Again, we compare Scripture with Scripture here to understand our Lord better. We are not called to throw ourselves headlong into the evil schemes of evil people when we know that they're doing evil. To knowingly be victimized. We don't have to do that. To, go, uh, to allow ourselves to be taken advantage of when we can see wrongdoing and avoid it. We're not called in that capacity, to give to those who will 
used for wrongdoing and to hurt us and, and, and implicitly to just say, okay, I'm just going to have all of my money on a table and whoever wants it can come get it. That's, that's not the spirit of what Jesus is teaching here. What Jesus is teaching in spirit is what we see in that, that last verse there, verse 31. And as you would that men should do to you, do you also to them likewise. God forbid that we should ever close our hand or refuse generosity or resist evil at the expense of charity, at the expense of mercy, at the expense of grace. God forbid that we should ever refuse to help another in need because we are, so, uh, we are concerned that they might misuse our generosity. But God forbid as well that we should give our generosity or that we should place ourselves in situations where we know without a doubt that money or those things or that situation will be used for evil. There's a principle here. It's about a mindset which thinks if I were in their place, knowing what I know of God and having a right view of Scripture, how would I want to be treated? Now, if you're looking at that objectively and you know that a person is, is, is um, um, uh, excuse me, lost my train of thought there for a moment, just kind of derailed. It's a snowy day, train, trains do that. Um, this is what we call the golden rule, Right? As you would that men treat you, treat them that way. The mindset of selflessness, of proactively being good to others, not because you expect them to be good back to you, but because you would want them to treat you that way if you were in their situation. When you get into that accident, or when that neighbor treats you wrongly, or when that store goofed up on your order, or when your family member wrongs you, you treat them in a manner that you would want to be treated. The Christ-like believer assumes a posture of humility, treats them with love and respect and kindness because that's what you would wish if you were in their shoes. You wouldn't wish implicitly that a person would confirm you in wrongdoing or evil. You wouldn't wish that a person would have no love toward you and so would not tell you when they think you're doing wrong, but you would wish them to respect you, to give you the benefit of the doubt, to love you. So treat them that way. God would have us endure great loss, great inconvenience, even sacrifice rights that are justly ours rather than have contention. Continuing in the text, we hasten on. Verses 32 to 34, Jesus says this, and this is uh, very um, pointed in his statements here. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love them which love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners and receive, to receive as much again. There's nothing humanly special about loving a person who loves you. Everyone does this. There's nothing humanly special about being good to those who are good to you. This is, this is normal. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, right? That's kind of the way of the jungle. There's nothing humanly special about lending to those who you know will pay you back. This is what everybody does. But we aren't just everybody. We are the children of God. We are the representatives of the kingdom of heaven on this earth. We have every advantage. We have the spirit of God within us. And this makes us, it does not make us better than anyone else. It does not make us better than other people. Don't, don't miss that. But it does make us different. You are not better. 
You're a sinner saved by grace. That doesn't make you better. But you are, or at least you'd better be different. You're called to be different. You have a capacity through the Spirit of God who is in you to act better, according to God's standard. Not through yourself, but through Christ. The world is blinded by the darkness of their sin. We have the light of life. But if we act just like the world, if we assume the same standard as the world, if we only love those who love us, if we're only good to those who are good to us, if we'll only lend to those that we expect to receive from again, if we will only do these things, the exact same things the world would do, if we're unwilling to be defrauded and so we, we, we refuse to bless, you say, well, I'm playing the odds and I think that that probably won't come back to me. I think that he's probably going to take advantage of me. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to assume that and I'm not going to help. If we are unwilling to be defrauded, if we demand our rights, and so we defraud others, we, we defraud others for our rights, if we bicker and argue over the things of this world, if we make enemies of those who do not share our opinions, if we're only kind or cordial or generous or patient with those who we love, if we only lend because we fully expect to be repaid, look, we're no different than the world around us. There's just no difference. And... If we're not different than the world around us, then why would anybody want what we claim to have? Seriously, if we don't look different, and we don't act different, and the outcome of our actions are not different, and we don't think different, and our jokes aren't different, and our attitude isn't different, and we've got the same maliciousness, and we've got the same vindictiveness, and we've got all of those things... If we still have enemies and we still bicker and we still argue and we still fight over material things and we still run to, to uh, civil judges to solve our problems and we still demand our personal rights and we still sever relationships when people disappoint us and we still live in unforgiveness and we still live in bitterness and we still hoard our resources, then why would anyone want what we claim to have? They'll look at us and say, well, here's the thing, Christian. You're the same as me, only you have to go to church and read your Bible. And you have to pretend to look good even though I know that you're the same as me. You have to put on a, a veneer. Why, why, why should I put the extra effort out? You're no different than I am. Why would anyone want that? If outside of a few external trappings of religion, you can find nothing in your life which can distinguish you from any other religion or any other um, person, no religion at all even, you, you ought to tremble in fear for there's something deeply wrong if outside of a few external rituals your heart your thinking your desires your intentions are the same as the unbelievers that are around you if you're around a bunch of unbelievers and all the stuff they want to do is stuff you want to do all the jokes that they say you'd say all the things they'd watch you'd watch all the all the 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 vindictiveness and the anger and the and the unforgiveness and the the you scratch my back I'll scratch yours all of the philosophies that they hold you hold too there's something deeply wrong. Deeply wrong. Simply put, we're fools if we think we can bear the fruit of the Spirit apart from obeying the doctrines of the Spirit. We're fools. Because we can't bear the fruit of the Spirit apart from the doctrines of the Spirit. On the contrary, however, Jesus says this, verses 35 and 36, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. If you are 
willing to yield the temporal rewards of earthly vindication, you will find in its place heavenly rewards that you could not even fathom. This is the mindset, right? Can you see the spiritual as greater than the physical? Can you see with eyes of faith that tell you that if I yield the things of this life, my vindication and my rights and my things, if I yield them now, if I'm willing to give them up, if I'm willing to lay them aside, that there's something far greater for me that takes faith. But to you who hear, this is for you. This is the way you need to live. You can't count those rewards in your hand. You can't put those rewards in the bank. And so it is that to yield the blessings and distinctions of earthly vindication for the sake of heavenly reward truly requires enduring faith. But as we do so, we have the privilege of being called children of the highest. We have the privilege of looking like our Father. And that's what Jesus is saying here. See, because that's how God is, right? God is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. He sends the rain to fall on the evil and on the just. He allows the evil to wake up every morning. Their hearts are still beating. Their lungs are still breathing. God is gracious to the just and to the unjust. His grace is pervasive. He has been kind to all. And if he is kind, even to the unthankful and to the evil, men who will to their last dying breath shake their fist at him, and yet God was kind to him on this earth. If God treats men and women that way, should we not as well? Do we hold a privilege that God does not to live in unforgiveness, to vindicate ourselves of wrong when God has not given us them? And even God has not exercised them to this point? Do we get to be the judges of hearts and hold others' morals against our moral standing? We do not. And indeed, this is where Jesus goes next. Verses 38 and 39. We'll stop here for today. Judge not, Jesus says, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. These are hard teachings, aren't they? These are hard teachings. Jesus makes it clear we're not to judge the hearts of men. He is. We do not stand in judgment over, the, over men. We do not stand in moral authority over men. And he says that if you do not judge, you will not be judged. The correlation there being that with what degree you judge the hearts of other men, you will be judged yourself. Then he says, condemn not. And then states that if we do not condemn, we will not be condemned. For with the, way, with the, the degree to which we are willing to condemn others, so too will God meet condemnation unto us. Then he says, forgive. For if we forgive, we will be forgiven. And give. And if we give it will be given to us. Notice how he says it will be given to us. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. The picture is of a sack of grain or something of the sort. A bag, and it's given in good measure. Heaping, right? And when that, when that bag is filled and it's heaped, then the person takes that bag and shuffles it. And it all kind of settles and it, it lowers. And then they heap more on. And then he shuffles it some more and it settles more. That's how you fill a bag, right? 
This is kind of like when you're going to get an ice cream cone. I know it's 10 degrees and snowing today, but you, you go to get an ice cream cone and you know the place and you've been there before and you know that there's that one guy and instead of just taking the scoop and going like this and handing it to you, he takes the scoop and he presses it in and then he takes another one and he presses it in. You want that guy because that guy is going to give you your money's worth. He's going to give you the maximum ice cream cone. He's going to keep pressing and pressing and pressing. He's going to heap it up nice and high and you, you'll say, no, no, I'll wait for that guy to give me a cone. Just, I'll, I'll wait for him. He's the guy I want. Jesus says, if you give, it'll be given back and it'll be given back in greater measure than you could possibly imagine. The principle is this. Whatever you give, it'll be measured to you again. From this idea comes a false concept that we see around our world from Near Eastern uh, religions called karma. Yet, like most false ideas, karma being a, a false idea, it has a kernel of truth. This is the kernel of truth from which karma comes. But karma is different. Because karma states that there's a cosmic balancing force in the universe, that every evil deed will have an evil reaction. That's not true, is it? There are people that have devoted their lives to evil. And one day, in the judgment, they will receive for their evil. But there are those who have devoted their lives to evil, and they don't go home and, you know, find houses flooded and find lightning bolts striking them and these sorts of things. There's no equal and opposite reaction to every action morally on this earth. Evil men prevail, do they not? How many of David's psalms say, why do the righteous suffer? Why do evil prevail? He's lamenting the fact that he looks at these people who are evil and they're prospering. And he, he assures himself that one day they will be judged. But that's not karma. Karma says that there's a balancing force in the world. God, God's, God didn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. But this is true. That as a child of God, in the lives of God's children, Jesus promises that if you have spiritual ears to hear it and believe it, to whatever degree you forego your rights and pour into others the character of Christ, pouring into them the mercy and the grace and the patience and the forgiveness and the generosity of God to them, God will measure that and more back to you. Sowing and reaping principle. Likewise, to whatever degree you exercise false judgment, condemnation, stinginess, unforgiveness, you can expect the same from God. Don't expect God to bless you when you won't bless others. Don't expect God to forgive you when you won't forgive others. We're not talking about eternal salvation here. That's by grace through faith alone and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. We're talking about your relationship with God, that day in, day out walk. Now you don't want to miss part two. Because in part two, we're going to deconstruct that more specifically. This is one of the most misinterpreted passages in the whole Bible. Judge not lest you be judged. How many times have you heard it, right? You, you say something is sin and people go, oh, you're so judgmental. Oh, you're just judgmental, holier than thou. That's not what it means. The essence of Jesus' teachings will be understood through his subsequent, uh, subsequent statements in part two. But let me just make this clear for today, lest you aren't able to make it back next week. Jesus is not saying here that we as believers have no right to call sin, sin. Jesus is not saying that we as believers have no right to identify with or to identify and separate 
from activities which we deem contrary to the word of God. That is not judgmentalism. And why? Well, because to call sin, sin is not to pass judgment. It's to state a fact. I'm not being anyone's moral arbiter. I'm not being anyone's moral judge to look at somebody who stole and say, that is sin. That's simply stating a fact. A fact in God's word. Stated clearly. That's not judgment. That's not what it means by judgment. It doesn't mean we can't discern. It doesn't mean we can't state fact. It means I can't stand over somebody and be their moral judge. If a person feels judged when we call sin what it is, it's the word of God that's judging them, not us. It's the word of God that is revealing their dark heart. We're just stating the truth. And in fact, have we not been called to do that? Have we not been called to declare the truth of God's word? It is not we who have any right or authority to judge a man's heart, but make no mistake, God's word has every authority to judge a man's heart. And we have been given authority to declare Christ's word. So to tell a person that something they're doing is sinful or wrong or immoral, when it is clearly stated in the word of God as such, Or conversely, to tell a person that what they're doing is right or moral or obedient is only sinfully judgmental when it is we who are making that judgment. So if I uh, walked into the church today and you said, Pastor, those glasses are sinful. Well, there is a moral judgment that you are placing on me. You say, Pastor, glasses, what? Perhaps some of you don't remember the time in fundamentalism where wire rim glasses were seen as a problem. These things happen in religious circles. That's judgmentalism. That is me becoming the moral arbiter of someone else. That's me saying they are right or wrong with God based upon some external standard that I have deemed. That's judgment. But if we stand upon a higher and indeed an infallible authority, and that is this book, the Word of God, This is not us judging. This is us obediently stating the truths of God's word. We are called judgmental. Why? Because the world doesn't accept God's word. They think we're being moral arbiters, but in fact we are not. They're going to call us judgmental and get used to it. Get used to carnal Christians calling you judgmental. Because they don't regard the word. And if they're not going to regard the word, then when you tell them what the word says, they think you're being a moral arbiter. No, you're not. You are telling them what God has judged. That's different. The world hates God's standards, so we're going to be called judgmental. Don't let it get to you. But every time you're called that, search your heart and make sure you aren't. Because if you judge immorally, if you judge sinfully, the Bible says you will be judged by that same token. It will be meted back to you. We're warned against passing judgment against the hearts, the intentions, the subjective actions of men based upon our own standard of morality. To become their moral arbiter and thus treating them as if they are morally inferior to us because we perceive their actions as such. Even when a man commits evil, to assume upon their heart and to pass judgment upon their condition or intentions is to take upon ourselves a privilege and a responsibility which we are not afforded by God. To look down upon a man for his sin as if we are without sin, to treat men as if they are inferior or refuse to be in company with them because we feel that 
we are better than them. This is sinfully judgmental. If we assume a moral superiority, this is sinfully judgmental. And Christ's warning is this, that to whatever degree of harshness and lack of mercy and lack of grace you approach others, expect God to approach you in turn. Now again, this is a call into a mindset which rests within the bounds of all biblical truths. God is our judge, God is everyone's judge, and this is how you want it. You don't want men to be your judge, you want God to be your judge. Let's apply these concepts. Christ likeness realized. Next week in verses 39, 40, and then to verse 49, we'll consider the spiritual motivations that undergird the mindset that compel the actions, if that makes any sense. But this week, we learn what we are to be in Christ, how we're to act, the context within which we as Christians are to live our lives. Point number one is we apply. Be Christ-like in love. Yield your rights to God's authority to avenge. Paul speaks to this reality many times in his epistle and expresses it well. Consider Paul's statements to the believers of Corinth in regarding going to law with other believers. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-7. through 7. He says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust? And not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak, it, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother. So here we have this scenario where, where Paul says, look, you are going to law uh, against your brother in Christ uh, and you're submitting yourself to the judgment of unbelievers who do not have the wisdom of God, who do not have the spirit of God indwelling. Should not even the very least esteemed man in your assembly having the Holy Spirit be able to judge better than the very wisest of unbelievers. And so he says, if, you're going to, if you need a judgment, go before the church for that judgment. Don't go before the law. But then he says something else. He ups the ante. I haven't, I haven't uh, um, turned yet, but let's, let's look at this last little bit here. He says, and that before unbelievers, now therefore there is utterly fault among you because ye go to law one with another. He says, but you know what's even a, a bigger fault? Not just that you go to law before unbelievers, but there's a fault that you go, would ever go to law at all against your unbeliever. Then look, look at the mindset. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you, who would defraud you. Why not rather suffer yourself to be defrauded rather than put yourself into a situation where you're at contention with a fellow believer? And that's just believers. That's not even your enemies. Is that not what Jesus is speaking about in Luke 6? The mindset that we would suffer ourselves to be so? Call it what you will. Call it taking the high road. 
but recognize that the mindset of Christ is a mindset where we have yielded our rights, not just to Christ, but in our interactions with others as well. Selflessness is the call. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 12, verses 18 to 21. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. How much lies within you? If it's at all possible, if there's anything possible that you can do, if there's anything on your end that you can do to foster peace, do it. Asterisk. Unless it means you have to give money. Unless it means you have to be defrauded. Unless it means you'll be put at a disadvantage. They're not in the text. There's no footnote. There's no guy at the end of the commercial talking in a really loud, uh, fast voice so that you can't understand what he's saying about all the little caveats. As much as lieth in you with every ounce of your being, live peaceably with all men. Now some men just want to see the world burn, right? You can't live peaceably with them. They just won't be peaceable. That's the way it goes. But as much as lies within you, if it's at all possible on your end, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him to drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. That would be to give him a blessing. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Better to allow yourself to be defrauded than to fail to show the love of Christ to even the worst of your enemies. Better to allow yourself to be defrauded than to fall into conflict with another. When others wrong you, don't seek to wrong them back. Don't seek your right to justice. Do you have enough faith to believe that vengeance is the Lord's? To love your enemy, to do good to them that hate you, to bless them that curse you, to pray for them which despitefully use you. And if you do not, if you love them which love you and are good to them which are good to you, but lash out in vengeance against your enemies and feverishly guard your real or perceived rights and privileges regardless of the offender regardless friend or foe regardless of what it means to them how are you any different than the world around you how are you any different than the people that are out there right now walking shopping at walmart instead of in church on sunday how are you any different how are you any different than the muslim whose god allah we know him better as satan tells them that vengeance against the infidels is theirs and promises to reward them if they will avenge themselves and avenge their God. God doesn't need us to avenge him. Is our God really that small that he needs us to avenge him? Is our God really that incapable that he needs fallible humanity to take that upon us? Our God said the exact opposite. You want to know how we know that the God of the Bible is not Allah. Read Luke 6. That's not Allah. That's not Muhammad's words. How are you any different from the moralist? person who doesn't believe in God but is kind enough when, at, when you're on his side but is feverishly opposed to those who are on his bad side. How are you any different from the thousands of false religions and how they act if you are just Scratching the back of those who scratch yours. How does the world know the Christian ethic? How does the world know the difference? It's when you live it. That's what validates the truth of God's word. They can hear it. You know what validates it? 
when you, at the expense of yourself, to your very life, are willing to be defrauded for righteousness' sake. That's what the blood of the martyrs did. That's why they went willingly to death, forgiving those who were putting them to death, asking God's forgiveness, rejoicing that they would be counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. And many who killed these people, the truth was validated in their hearts. It's validated through our actions. And this is a bold declaration, isn't it? I mean, even for conservatives, this is a bold declaration. The president-elect that we have right now earned his popularity on an eye for an eye, didn't he? On saying the things to the enemies of conservatism that everybody, <laughs> that, that the conservatism is thinking. The things that they like to say to their enemies. And that's what got him elected. Is that he was willing to be cruel back to those who were cruel. He's willing to speak ill of those who would speak ill. He's willing to play by this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth philosophy. And that makes sense because none of us wants to be abused. None of us wants to be called ugly names. None of us wants to be treated poorly or used as a doormat, be defrauded or mistreated. But as believers, we understand that we have a higher authority. And that higher authority has promised to avenge us so that we don't need to avenge ourselves. Can we trust it? If we do what Jesus has said, if we take the high road, if we yield our rights to be avenged to the Lord, that God cares enough to do it, that God cares enough about you to avenge you. Be Christ-like in love. Yield your rights to God's authority to avenge. Second, be Christ-like in generosity. Yield your right to things. We shift our mindset from the physical to the spiritual. Jesus first hit on our emotional rights. Now he talks about our physical possessions. Economically, physically, do you believe that the things you have, you have because of you or because of God? Do you believe that God will provide for your needs? Do you believe that if you obey God's word as it relates to giving, that God will give back, that God will take care of you if you do what you've been called to do? This is the whole point of God's command to give. We give because we fully understand that it's God's. And if God has put us in a position where we can help, where we can bless, then ought we? We don't need to wring our hands and sweat over provision because if God is our provider and He's the one that's calling for us to bless others, then we can trust He will bless us. So we have to have this mindset that we're ready and willing to give and to lend, not expecting return. Hands open. Yes, be wise. But incline yourself to be generous. Even at Potentially the expense of yourself. The point is this. When you look at your paycheck, when you consider your bank account, you think on those things which you have, do you understand that they have not been earned by you, they've been given by God? If God were to ask you to give them away, if God were to take them away from you, would you be willing to yield them, knowing that they are God's, not yours? When you understand that all things are from God, you'll be compelled to be a good steward of the things which you have. You won't yield vastly more important spiritual responsibilities for the sake of material wealth and prosperity. You won't give up your family. You won't give up your church. You won't give up your, 
your personal time with God just to make money. Because it's all in God's hands anyway. It's all His. And when we think this way, we'll be willing to give. Because we've yielded our right to things. Your love, your loyalty, your priorities, the essence of all you hold dear, it will rest in heaven, not on this earth. It's all going to stay here when you go anyway. You can't take it with you. The very best example of this is the life of Job, right? Job has ten children. Job is one of the greatest men in the East. We talked about it not too long ago. Let's talk about it briefly again. Job, in one day, loses it all. He loses his things. He loses his children. They're all dead. His ten children are dead. Seven sons, three daughters. His camels have been stolen. Uh, His flocks have been destroyed. His crops have been destroyed. And he says in Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. Job said, God, it's all yours. You gave it to me and it's your right to take it away. God, it's all yours. You gave it to me and you want me to give it to others. I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to do that because it's yours. And if if that's what you want, I'll do it. Be Christ-like in love. Be Christ-like in generosity. Third, love your enemies. Love the household of faith even more. The mindset of loving your enemies is what we are studying today. Love your enemies. But for the moment, I'm compelled to remind you that this love is to extend to all men and it is intended by God to be particularly noticeable among the church. The body of believers here, this church, is to be a haven of deep, sacrificial love, one to another. Our lives ought to be tirelessly yielded to each other. Can we say this of this church? Can you say this of you toward your fellow believers? Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Peter would say a similar thing. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all things have fervent, that meaning earnest, prolonged, intensive charity, love among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And what is charity? 1 Corinthians 13.4-7 Charity suffereth long, is kind, envieth not, faunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. That's the definition. That is how you should treat everybody. And then when you get into the household of faith, when you come together as believers, when you're interacting one with another, turn the dial up to 11 and leave it there. All the time. First Corinthians thirteen four through seven should exemplify your life, especially in the household of faith. Finally, free yourself from the responsibility and arrogance of judgment and condemnation. The greatest spiritual favor you can do for yourself is to step back and gain some perspective and stop judging people. It's our privilege to tell people what the Word of God has to say. It's our privilege to stand upon the truth, to live within the context of the truth, to allow the Word of God to speak for itself, to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. James tells us that's pure religion. 
Separation is pure religion. And when we do this, we don't have to judge people. The Word of God judges people. It's one of the functions of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit convicts people. We don't have to be the, whole, the people's conscience. We don't have to be their conviction. That's the Spirit's job, not my job. It's not my job to be your conscience. You've got one of those. And it's not my job to lord over you and keep pricking your conscience. The Holy Spirit does that for you. It's my job to tell you what the Bible says. It's my job to live it out. And if you're living in conviction, it's because there's something wrong in the Spirit. Is pointing it out. The perfect law of liberty judges the hearts of men. To tell people the word of God is not to judge them, it's to inform them. But when we stand above people, when we pass down moral judgments, when we put ourselves in that place above them, we are in a place that we have no right to be. And you really don't want to be here, not just because God will judge you. It exposes us to the judgments of God, but it's It's a place where people won't want to be around you. A sinner doesn't want to be around you. When if a sinner doesn't want to be around you because you are living a moral life, an ethical life, and you believe the Bible, and you tell them what the Bible says, that's their problem, not yours. But if a sinner doesn't want to be around you because they can't say two words together without you informing them of their moral inferiority to you, that's your problem, not theirs. It's the difference between telling somebody something that they are doing is a sin and treating them negatively because they are a sinner. And this was the whole problem of the scribes and the Pharisees, was it not? We think back to Luke 5. Don't divorce the context. In Luke 5, Jesus sits with the publicans and sinners and he eats with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees are angry because he would dare eat with them. Now, Jesus is the very Word of God incarnate. There's no doubt that to be in His presence would be to feel unworthy. There's no doubt that Jesus' teachings were those of righteousness and that to hear Him was to have one's heart pierced with the realities of the truths of God. But Jesus ate with publicans and sinners nonetheless. The scribes and the Pharisees in their moral arbitration, in their moral judgmentalism, in their moral superiority said, you are not worthy to eat with me. You are not worthy of this carnal practice of eating with me because I'm better than you. And you need to know that by the fact that I won't come near you. And Jesus said, no, that's not it. Now, did Jesus compromise on truth? No. Did these people hear the truth? I guarantee you they did. I guarantee you they did. But Jesus would not refuse to eat with them for it. Republicans and sinners took the judgmental and condemnatory step of refusing to associate with sinners. And that's what it means to judge. Instead of treating people exclusively within the context of their sins, we need to treat people with the grace that God has treated us with. We could give example after example. Amos 5.15 says, Hate evil, love good. Establish judgment. God wants us to hate what He hates, to love what He loves. This is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about giving a pass to evil. But we can call sin what it is. We can call sin, sin. And allow God to judge. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says this, Know ye not 
that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. You know what's on that list? Sodomy's on that list. But you know what else is on that list? Adultery, fornication, idolatry. If your life is consumed with these things and there is no conviction in your heart and no desire to turn from these things, the Scriptures say whether you're a sodomite or whether you're an adulterer, whether you're an idolater or whether you're a fornicator, whether you are effeminate or whether you're a thief or whether you're covetous or whether you're a drunkard or whether you're just one that likes to get in fights, a reviler, or whether you're an extortioner, you've fallen short. And so why do we judge one sin above another? Why will we associate with believers who covet but turn the adulterer away at the door or the sodomite away at the door? Why are we the moral arbiters of who's better than who? Free yourself from arrogant responsibility and presumption. Don't pretend like sin isn't sin, but don't make yourselves abhorrent in the eyes of others through moral judgmentalism. Don't cut yourself off from the very people that God desires to save. Leave the judgment to God. And that frees you to love your enemies, to bless them that curse you, to do good to them which hate you, and to pray for them which would despitefully use you. Why? Because judgment is of the Lord. Vengeance is of the Lord. He will do that one day. That's in His field of purview. Our business is to do as Christ did. Love. Forgive. Teach the truth. Do right. Represent the Father. And this is what we'll learn about next time. That all of this is little more than our opportunity to follow the one who has done so much for us. That only the Spirit of Christ which is in you can produce these actions, these realities. And that as you live them, others see Christ in you. This is where the world sees the genuine difference. This is where people are one. Not through moral grandstanding. Not through judgmentalism, but through selfless living. Through yielding your rights. Through yielding your rights to vengeance and to things. And to fervently love one another. So how are we doing today? Are you like Christ in love? Are you like Christ in generosity? Are you fervently loving the household of faith? Or are you stuck in this rut of moralism and judgmentalism? If the Holy Spirit of God has placed His thumb on something in your life, I would encourage you not to ignore it. For ye who hear. This is a hard truth. It's not an easy one. It takes a spirit-mindedness, working itself out in Christ-likeness. But it can be done, for Christ has told us to do it. For we who hear, can we live this way? Let's pray.